Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Hi listeners, this episode on pathological demand avoidance was released in November 2022 and we are adding this intro in February 2023. After the original episode was released, we received mixed feedback from listeners. What we are hearing from some of our listeners is that the first couple of minutes of this episode felt very invalidating and dismissive of the impact that PDA has on their lives or the lives of their loved ones. It's important for us to hear when we have missed the mark, and although it wasn't our intention to be dismissive of people's experiences, we absolutely acknowledge that this was the impact for some people. What we heard is that the introduction was triggering for some, and that this was a barrier for them to engage with the content of the episode. The reason we wanted to unpack demand avoidance at the level that we have in this episode was to support people in identifying usable strategies and to prompt an understanding of the why, not just the what. It is for this reason that we've decided to remove our original introduction and get straight into the content. We hope you find it useful. We'd love to interview a PDA guest in the future to bring lived experience to this topic. So the term PDA or pathological demand avoidance was first coined in 1983 by Elizabeth Newson. And she conceptualized it as extreme resistance to the ordinary demands of life. And something that characterizes this profile of uh, behavior and response is extreme anxiety-driven need to feel a sense of control over your environment and to control the demands and expectations of others. And it's not just about the external demands that society, school, the workplace, relationships, our environment outside of us place on us. It can actually also be internal demands. So even things that you really want to be able to do or you feel that you quote unquote should be able to do or must do uh, or things that feel like rules or expectations that you've internalized, uh, they will feel like demands uh, that will trigger this extreme anxiety in the person. So PDA is identified as a behavior profile within autism. It's not officially a separate diagnosis. So that just means that it's not actually included in the diagnostic manuals that most clinicians use. Um, So that being the DSM-5, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, fifth edition, or the ICD-11, so the International Classification of Diseases. So because of this, it can't actually be officially diagnosed. It's really best understood currently as a sort of label, I guess, to uh, describe a certain set of behaviours and as a particular behavioural profile. So it's really thought of as within the autism sort of behavioural profile. 
and it's not really accepted that you can, you know, have a PDA profile outside of autism. So the PDA profile is gaining kind of momentum and recognition um, just amongst, you know, clinicians, um, certain groups, uh, particularly in the UK. And it's sort of gaining this momentum outside of the UK currently. And I think this really goes back to what we were saying earlier around the fact that this is something that so many people identify with and feel, you know, describe a set of behaviors or experiences that they are noticing in others or experiencing themselves really indicates that, yeah, it's such a gap in how people see themselves or or what's kind of available as a construct around this particular set of behaviors. I'd also like to add that it's it's a construct that Michelle, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't remember ever being talked about during any of our undergrad or postgrad psychology training. Um, and I don't really feel like I developed any awareness of it until maybe the last couple of years. And and because it it is a relatively, you know, new construct, I think uh, the take that you and I might have on it, Michelle, might be different to what other clinicians uh, working in the area would have. And yeah, I think there's lots of different ideas about PDA. It's still a developing construct as well. Um, And we're just going to see how this space evolves in the next few years. So as we talk about PDA today, um, what Monique and I really want to do is split it into things that we see as uh, issues with the PDA label and the concept of PDA as it stands, then talk a little bit about what are the benefits of the PDA label and the PDA construct. And then finally, we're going to chat a bit about, you know, what can we actually do to support uh, ourselves or, you know, someone else that we're supporting who has a PDA profile or has a difficulty with demand compliance. So starting off with things that we see as a bit problematic with the PDA uh, label, the first thing I think is something that is often uh, flagged as an issue with this label, which is the first word, pathological, pathological demand avoidance. Um, I think for me, that has been my first stumbling block with the whole concept of PDA. When I hear that word pathological, I think, you know, a couple of things come up for me. Firstly, what that does is, you know, in the label, pathologizes the particular set of behaviors. It says that this is a pathology, meaning that it's something that is inherently wrong or broken or deficit or diseased, you know, about this person. And the second thing that it does is it really focuses the problem on the individual. This is an issue that this individual has it's a problem with the way that they exist and operate in the world, as opposed to zooming out and really operating with that understanding that nobody exists in a vacuum. We all exist within a culture and whether something's a problem or not is inherently influenced by, you know, what is rewarded or not rewarded in the culture. So we're going to unpack, you know, those two things. So I think starting with this idea of it being a pathology or something wrong, I struggle with that 
so much. Something that I really like uh, that I've read in the literature uh, by autistic author Alison Moore, she talks about how um, other scholars in this area have actually reconceptualized pathological demand avoidance as rational demand avoidance, meaning that rather than it being a pathology or a problem, it's actually really a rational response to the experience of the world of an autistic person. You know, if we think about the way that Elizabeth Newson first conceptualized PDA, it's extreme resistance to the ordinary demands of life. Well, for a lot of autistic people, the quote unquote ordinary demands of life are actually very anxiety provoking and overwhelming. So avoiding them is kind of rational and adaptive. I don't know what you think about that, Monique. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. And like, why... (laughs) I don't understand why it's seen as such a negative or a bad thing. Um, I I think for me, I I kind of had a bit of a bodily reaction when I first saw this whole PDA pathological demand avoidance term. And I actually felt like angry, actually, like, what the hell is this? (laughs) Um, And I had the urge to avoid learning anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. <laughs> uh, so like, even though I, I myself probably wouldn't identify with, you know, being a pathological demand avoider, it kind of made me want to avoid engaging with the topic or the concept at all, kind of like a bit of an, a nephew. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I think this is where, you know, it's important to flag that I don't think there's any question that people on the spectrum are more demand avoidant than say a neurotypical person. The question for me comes around why, like what's driving that. And when we say that something's pathological or it's a pathology, um, we're really medicalizing and demonizing a set of behavioral traits that, yeah, absolutely. People on the spectrum are often more demand avoidant. And we're going to go into, you know, some reasons why that could be today. Um, But yeah, exactly as you said, Monique, is that always a bad thing? Is that a pathology? Is that something that is pathological? Yeah. And I think if you just look at the behavioral outcome, like, okay, we have this person or child that's been labeled as uh, pathologically demand avoidant because, you know, they're, they're not wanting to brush their teeth and they're tearing the house apart, uh, basically. <laughs> but when you, when you look at that, if you just look at the, the kind of the behavioral outcome and the external behavior and just label that and try to place an intervention on that external behavior, you're not actually addressing what is the underlying stuff going on for that person as to why are they so dysregulated all the time? Like, why can't they cope with demands? And I think you and I really invested in exploring and understanding the why for each person and seeing each person as like a unique individual and really wanting to be that investigator. Um, And so I think sometimes seeing it from that more behavioral perspective, you can miss out on that. Mm-mm. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, whenever we're unpacking the why, um, we're always trying to work out like what's the need 
that that certain behavior is serving. And, you know, when we go back to that initial definition of PDA, like an extreme aversion to the ordinary demands of everyday life, well, being able to actually meet demands requires that you've got capacity. And we're going to talk more about capacity today. But I think the issue is the neurotypical world rarely even acknowledges the needs of autistic individuals, let alone meets those needs. And yet there's an expectation for autistic individuals to be constantly complying with neurotypical demands, whether that's for, you know, coming from an individual or coming from a society-wide or, as you flagged earlier, Monique, those internalized um, self-demands that we, you know, apply to ourselves. And I think having that understanding of the cultural framework is actually so super important. You know, we know that capitalist society rewards compliance and punishes non-compliance because we're all products, we're all cogs in a wheel of production. And if you're not complying, then you're messing up the system, right? You're causing, you know, drama and interfering with production. Um, so we really need to ensure that we're expanding our viewpoint when we've got, say, an individual that seems to be displaying, you know, quote unquote, negative behaviors, right? That we're taking in the social, political and cultural context rather than just identifying that as a problem with the individual. You know, we all live in the petri dish that is our culture and our time. And I think it's a blind sight that we often have where everyone is so aware of the impact of someone's family, for instance, on their development and their sense of self and how they exist in the world. But culture is our family's family right? Culture is the environment that we all live in and it permeates every single aspect of ourself and our identity, what's a problem, what's not a problem. So working out how pathological something is um, or whether it's seen as pathological really requires an understanding of the culture and the broader environment. Yeah. And I, I think one, one thing we could potentially have a look at is for autistic individuals and people who have that uh, rational demand avoidance, um, I, I would see them as the canary in the coal mine, you know, the people for whom the, the system doesn't quite fit or the demands for them are intolerable. Um, whereas for everybody else, they might have like, you know, a midlife crisis when they hit 40 or whatever because of the way society is structured and all of that. Whereas an autistic person or someone with that demand avoidance might actually have a burnout when they're in primary school because the demands are intolerable and they're burned out. Some of the traits that are, I guess, conceptualized as PDA traits um, that have a bit of that pathological flavor to them, um, just in terms of the language that's used, are things such as saying that people with PDA have a surface level of sociability, but that they don't have any shame, pride, or responsibility, I guess, towards that hierarchy or that capitalist system um and yeah there, there's talk about having extreme mood swings driven by the need to be in control and possessing the ability to manipulate others so if we were to actually unpack that language used it really comes into play like we all have the ability to manipulate others uh like at, at the end of the day you can manipulate others for 
evil. Um, <laughs> you can manipulate others for what you think is a good reason. But at the end of the day, like that term manipulation, it, it's just about a person wanting to get their needs met. Oh yeah, totally. And I think when we look at those, uh, the actual like words used in the construct of PDA, they're so negative and it's really about when I kind of read through that I really see someone who is not playing their part someone who is not exactly as you say Monique not going about getting their needs met in the way that we expect them to or having needs that we don't expect someone to have so a really good example of this is thinking about you know PDA or demand avoidance in childhood we expect in society that children will do as they're told and that they're going to be compliant and they'll follow the rules and the regulations that the adults around them set now if you've got a child who finds that really abhorrent or you know is finds that very difficult to do and struggles with that we might say oh, they're manipulating me to try and have autonomy or be in control, right? They want to be in control of the situation. And I would almost always reverse that and say, well, don't you want to be in control of the situation? Aren't you manipulating them yeah, as well? Yeah. You know, it, it's literally the exact same thing. But one person, the adult, that's socially sanctioned for adults to manipulate and control children. It's not socially sanctioned for children to manipulate and control adults. Manipulation is something that every single person does every day. It's just trying to use others to get our needs met. That's a normal way of existing as a human being. It's just, are we doing that in a way that's socially or culturally sanctioned um, or not? And are our needs socially and culturally sanctioned or are they not? Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes uh, one thing to keep in mind there is like safety. You know, if you are trying to get your needs met in a way that's like physically hurts others or, you know, actually is abusive um, towards others or you're hurting yourself physically, um, mentally, emotionally, then that's where, you know, you might need to have a look at that and, and have a look at, you know, what's a better way to get your needs met. But yeah, I mean, to me, like with with children and parenting and things like that, when when people talk about, oh, you know, kids that are PDAs, they have no regard or respect for authority. But for me, I'm just like, yeah, and <laughs> so like to to me, um, also like being autistic myself, like I I wouldn't give respect to someone no matter like how high above me in the social hierarchy they are, unless they actually deserve that respect. Mm, um, mm. And there's, there's sort of like, I don't know, that sort of just makes sense to me, but I guess it mustn't for neurotypical people. Yeah, that makes total sense. And to me, the kind of different uh, view or concept or understanding of social hierarchy between autistic people and neurotypical people, particularly in childhood, again, is one of the actually key drivers of what we might see as demand avoidance. This is just in my experience as a clinician working with families and, you know, adults and children and, and um, whatnot. Um, but a lot of the time, that is one of the key drivers. You've got a neurotypical kid even if they don't want to do the thing that they're being told to do most of the time and, you know, other factors dependent, 
right? Mood dependent, emotion regulation dependent, relationship dependent, you know, all of these things. But all of those things being, you know, held constant, most of the time neurotypical kids actually don't find it too aversive or too difficult to comply just because, because for neurotypical kids and neurotypicals in, in general, one of the main drivers of behavior is social cohesion, tribal hierarchy, maintaining that sense of social cohesion. So for a neurotypical kid, it's actually so much more aversive and stressful to do something that's going to disrupt the status quo or disrupt the relationship or challenge social cohesion. Whereas for an autistic kid who, you know, an autistic individuals don't have that same inbuilt intrinsic, this is the social hierarchy, right? It's more, everyone is equal. And just because I'm a kid and you're an adult, why should that mean that you're the one that gets to control me just because this makes no sense. So I think a lot of the time that we see autistic kids be demand avoidant, firstly, the demand makes no sense to them. You know, it doesn't feel like something that is important or that needs to be done, or, you know, they don't see the why for the demand. And then secondly, it's just like, well, no, I, I don't want to do that. And why do you get to say that I have to do that just because you're older than me? You know, that absolutely makes no sense. Um, and Adults find that really hard and really discombobulating, particularly neurotypical adults, because it feels like this extreme disruption in social connectivity and social hierarchy. And, you know, if we go back and we think about our own childhoods, I'm not autistic, but even I can remember so many times in my childhood where I had to do something that I didn't want to do, like just wear an outfit that I didn't want to wear, or I was really enjoying reading a book and I just had to go and go to the shops with my mum because I couldn't be left at home. And I remember that feeling of just frustration and powerlessness. You know, you're completely not in control of your life. You have no agency when you're a kid. And for some kids, that's not really a problem. And for other kids, it's a major problem. When we see these, as we we're talking about before, these ways or strategies that kids on the spectrum might use to, you know, manipulate or get their needs met, that's really a rational way to try and increase agency in their life. And the more that that agency is blocked, the more that they're going to have a stress response about that. And that can turn into some of these really big explosive or, you know, really high level avoidant behaviors that look, you know, oh, this is so problematic. Um, but it's that kind of extreme, I'm so stressed about having no agency over my life. Yeah. Like if I think about it um, now, I think it would be awful to have to go back. Like if I had to travel back in time and like relive being a child and being a teenager again, you know, there are those things that go around like, oh, like if you, if you could have a million dollars, but be forced to go through high school again, would you do it? And my answer is absolutely not. Oh my God. I uh, totally agree. That's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And just, yeah, I think that's where parents often struggle with teenagers because teenagers are getting a sense of that autonomy and wanting to have more control over their choices and their life, um, being able to go out and do things independently. And it's really difficult for parents to navigate, you know, what should I be granting permission for my team to do and how much supervision do they need? But 
I just remember getting my driver's license like the first time and having that that real sense of freedom of being able to go anywhere I want and having your own money, being able to do anything you want with that money. Um, yeah. So I think too, like if you're a parent, place yourself back in your, like your shoes of what it was like for you as a child and really actually think about all the demands placed on you. You know, even if you're not neurodivergent, but like having to eat meals at mealtimes that are set for you, having to eat food that you don't like necessarily, but it's been cooked for you, having to go to school every day, you know, whether you like it or not. Um, there really is minimal, yeah, choice and control for a lot of children if you really break it down and think about it. Yeah, hard agree. And something that I often challenge parents to do uh, in a different context when, you know, parents might be thinking, ah, oh, my child never listens. You know, they never listen to what I'm saying. Actually, kids listen a lot. Kids do and listen to you quite frequently throughout the day. And keeping a little bit of a mental tally of all the times they do listen and all the times they do comply, no matter how big or how small, will, I think, be a good illustration um, of what you were saying there, Monique, which is the actual magnitude of compliance requests for a child at home, at school, you know, with babysitters, with caretakers, whatever, is massive. And if you've got a kid who happens to be more independent, <laughs> um, have a higher need for autonomy, their sort of bucket of yeses, and I want to unpack this concept a little bit here, but their bucket of yeses, the amount of times that they can say yes and comply throughout the day um, is probably drained by the end of the day. So they get home from school and they're like, I've got no more yeses. Yeah. And I think too, like looking back, you know, even on our childhoods, I don't know about you, Michelle, but I remember um, like time out, out of school. So weekends, school holidays, there was a lot of unstructured time with really low demands. Um, and because I lived out in the countryside, you know, we would get up on a weekend and go out and just spend time in nature and, and playing. And we weren't expected to be home until it got dark and we could come and go as we pleased for food or whatever, but really there wasn't much demand placed placed on us. And like, I think a lot of millennials and Gen Xs, you know, we might be that last generation that has that. You can just go out and play with the neighborhood kids or go out to the park or ride your bike around, you know, and be safe to do that. And parents to give you that permission because they feel it's safe to do that. Whereas I feel like there is this sort of societal expectation or demand to fill up every moment of free time with activities, even on school holidays to go out and be doing things as a family. And even for us as adults, you know, to be busy all the time and having all these demands sort of placed on our, our free time, if we have free time. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a bit of a cultural shift as well and a historical shift on the amount, sheer amount of demands that are expected uh, compared to what there would have been like, you know, even a couple of hundred years ago or 500 years ago. Yeah, that's a great insight. And I, I, I really agree. And I think one of the things that is really important, uh, if you yourself find that you've got a high demand avoidance or you struggle, you know, with demands, um, or your child does is allowing times, not just where they can have more control, but where they can actually have freedom 
that's a bit tricky. You know, again, if you're thinking, okay, I don't actually feel safe or comfortable to let my kids, you know, run in the streets, that's totally fair. But where you can, having exactly as you're saying, Monique, that just no demand. Because another really big um, differential, so alternative explanation for demand avoidance that I think uh, explains a lot is actually just personality. So we've talked before on the pod about uh, this idea of agreeableness as a personality trait. Um, It's one of the big five personality traits, really well validated cross-culturally, across time, across ages, things like that. So it's really kind of quite... um, well-validated construct, essentially. So agreeableness is basically, there's different facets of agreeableness, but it's basically the tendency to be agreeable, so to speak. So, you know, acquiesce or agree to other people or needing to have more control and being more disagreeable. So more likely to say no, for instance, in different facets of your life. As I said, there's different kind of sub elements of this, but what we generally find is that people who are high in agreeableness feel safest and have no problem and feel really comfortable saying yes to things. And that's not necessarily yes to experiences because that's a different, you know, that's a different personality trait, but just complying, saying, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll do that thing. Yeah, whatever. Um, people low in agreeableness are people who have a much harder time. No is easy for people low in agreeableness. Yes is actually hard. And this is where this idea of the bucket of yeses comes in. I think everyone starts their day with a bucket of yeses, right? Some people's buckets are huge and they're just giving yeses out willy-nilly, right? So they get to the end of the day and they're like, yeah, I've got heaps of yeses left. Other people have a very small bucket of yeses. And so people with a small bucket of yeses actually have to be quite conscious about where they give their yeses. If you've used up all your yeses and it's 11 a.m., well, you may as well just go back to bed. <laughs> um, so you need to be a little bit more discriminant about, you know, where you're kind of giving that compliance energy. So thinking about it more of just a personality trait, kind of stable personality trait, I think is a lot less pathologizing than saying this is like a pathological demand avoidance issue that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've, we've had a chat about this actually on the podcast, um, just when we were recording and we reflected that actually I'm pretty high on agreeableness. I find it easy to say yes, but I do like to know the why I like things to be explained. Like, why do you want me to do this? And then if it makes logical sense to me, sure, no problem. But, um, you, Michelle, on the other hand, (laughs) (laughs) well, yeah, like, I mean, I'm really low in agreeableness. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone who knows me. And I think that's a really interesting reflection on the overlap of personality and neurotype, right? Because you're autistic, but you're high in agreeableness. So you actually have a bigger bucket of yeses, but because of your autistic neurotype, you know, you still need to know the why in things and you're not going to just take instructions for granted or your behavior isn't based on, I have to maintain this kind of social hierarchy or, you know, whatever. So that's where, okay, I'm likely to say yes, but I do need to know what the reason is. And it has to make sense to me for me to be able to do it. I do have a little story about when I worked at a a place before coming to Redland Psychologist. And it was a place where there was, it was kind of like a more corporate environment. 
there was always some sort of corporate change in how, you know, they wanted us as health professionals to work and you would get supervision. And I remember one time my supervisor asking me like, are you like, okay with this new change that's come up? And I was just really honest and said, well, not really. Like, I don't think it makes any sense. And it's, it's like annoying, but I guess I have to do it. And she actually like openly laughed. <laughs> and I was like, why is she laughing at me? Like my answer, I'm just being really honest. Like this is supervision. I'm just giving you my opinion. Like, sure, I'll do what's asked of me, but it's kind of grudgingly. Like I'm only doing it because like, I want to get paid basically. <laughs> Even this is, though it doesn't make any sense to have all these changes all the time. Uh, and reflecting back on that, I was like, oh, I feel like that was definitely an autistic moment where my high level of agreeableness came through, but I was dissatisfied because there wasn't a good why. Yeah, I think that's a really great example of that, where, you know, your response there was not at all kind of caught up. You weren't even really aware of like the social contract in that moment where it was like, oh yeah, like this is fine, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, and that's like the the autistic neurotype, but because you're very agreeable, you are able just to kind of get through it didn't cost you anything extra in terms of you know saying yes to that it was frustrating because it didn't make sense but it didn't add that extra layer of cost of like ugh, right where it's so funny because I feel like it's almost comes to the same because I'm not autistic but I'm very low in agreeableness so I find my bucket of yeses is really small um and sometimes even when I do think that something, you know, I can see that it's a good why, but it involves me subjugating myself or like going against what I wanted to do, or even just saying the word yes. It's interesting when I reflect on that, because the reason I love the bucket of yeses analogy is because I definitely find I'm much more free with my yeses in the morning than in the evening. If I'm having a difficult conversation with someone or I have to like do something I don't want to do, try and book a time with me in the morning than <laughs> the evening because I'm going to find that really challenging in the evening. But again, this is where the overlap of neurotype comes in. Because I'm neurotypical, I also have that social cohesion, social compliance, social hierarchy stuff in the back there. So often as I said, it kind of comes to the same as the experience you had, Monique, but just where I'm like, oh, I'm begrudgingly doing this, but I'm doing it anyway, but for the opposite reason to you, if that makes sense. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So now I know if I propose a new idea, I'm going to talk to you in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, please please do. Please do. After five o'clock, it's unlikely that I'll say yes. Uh Cool. Another thing to mention with the whole sort of PDA construct um, is that even though there is, I guess, currently a higher percentage of boys and men being recognized and diagnosed as autistic than autistic girls and women, there is actually a higher proportion of autistic girls being identified as PDA compared to boys which strikes me as a little bit strange. 
Yeah. So basically what we're seeing there is even though there's many more boys and men with an autism diagnosis compared to girls and women, the rate of PDA um, identification is equal between girls and boys, which on the spectrum, which means that if you're a girl on the spectrum, you're more likely to have a PDA label compared to if you're a boy on the spectrum. So yeah, I agree. You know, it's kind of why are all these autistic girls being labeled with PDA? I have some thoughts and it starts with patriarchy, but <laughs> Monique, do you want to jump in there? <laughs> um, I think it probably ends with patriarchy as well, to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah. So <laughs> look, I mean, for me, the idea that a lot of girls are being labeled as having pathological demand avoidance kind of speaks to this idea of autistic girls in general, often bucking gender trends and gender expectations. I think, you know, in our society, there's such a huge expectation on girls to be compliant more so than there is for boys. You know, there's space for boys to be non-compliant. That's part of the gender role that we allow um, boys to exist in. Whereas when we've got girls being non-compliant, well, that's a problem. And this goes back to everything exists within a petri dish of culture. Um, so I'm wondering if that's maybe a contributor to why more girls at proportionately than boys are being labeled with PDA. Yeah, it is interesting too that I guess there is this um, pattern where it is more expected for girls to have those internalizing uh, mm states of meltdown and shutdown so really girls having more anxiety than having like a physical meltdown and trashing the joint so it is interesting to me that even though girls do typically tend to internalize more they are getting labeled with this pda label well, yeah, and it sounds like the girls who are externalizing, and, and we know this kind of just in general as well, girls who externalize, it's somehow more shocking than a boy who mm -hmm. is demonstrating the exact same behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that's shocking to us is it's outside of our expectations. We don't expect as a society girls to behave in that way. Um, and so when we see girls externalizing or having a really hard time complying, it's immediately attracts this kind of pathological label and saying, okay, well, mm -hmm. this is part of your dysfunction. This is part of your inability to exist within societal expectations, which is true, but I don't think that's a pathology. But yeah, anyway, that's just my two cents on the patriarchy for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. 
For sure. My favorites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. Hello, listeners. We have a request. We want to hear your questions. In our last episode for the season, Michelle and I will be answering listener questions. So if there's anything that you're burning to ask or that you feel you want more information on, email us at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Get your questions in by November 7th and tune in to our last episode of the season to hear them answered. So we've talked so far about some alternative explanations for a PDA profile um, and really, you know, that kind of existing within the broader culture of society rather than being um, an issue that's inherently wrong or pathological about the individual. So we're just going to unpack now some of the things that we feel like could be contributing to a PDA type profile or PDA behavior um, that's actually often related to just being an autistic person living in the world and some things that are known features of the autistic neurotype and how those things can sometimes be demonstrated or come out as non-compliance or look like non-compliance from the outside. So I think one of the, the things that can lead into contributing to the overload that autistic people experience uh, just living in, you know, a dominantly neurotypical world can be uh, demands on flexibility and I guess people not realising how much energy is actually taken up coping with transitions Um and this can really lead to flexibility fatigue in situations that require a lot of flexibility or transitions. And part of the, the PDA profile, it, it is, you know, thought to be mainly an anxiety response. And a lot of the quote unquote behaviors that are pathologized are around getting that sense of certainty or reducing uh, unpredictability in the outside environment because to an autistic person the neurotypical world is really confusing it is inconsistent neurotypical people are changing their mind all the time like uh, just an example is like making plans with friends so like I've had situations where uh, because of both being really busy I've made a plan with someone like for a date three months away and then in the month or like the week before leading up to that plan, the neurotypical person said to me, oh, like, are we still doing this? And I'm like, what do you mean? We made plans. Like it's in my diary. It's, it's set in stone. Like it's chiseled in stone that this plan's going to happen. 
<laughs> are you just like thinking like does it not even occur to you is it not in your awareness that we have a plan and like yeah would you just like be like oh well like maybe we won't do that you know mm, and to mm. me that would result in actually a, a meltdown yeah if that plan doesn't go ahead and depending on how much of my flexibility energy that I've used up that day or that week or that month if I have a lot of that flexibility energy I might be able to cope with that change in plan if there's been a lot of other stuff that's changed that week or sapped you know that energy then yeah that last minute change in plan probably going to result in a meltdown Mm, yeah and then you know that resultant emotional overwhelm can then lead to okay no I'm not doing this other thing that you know I have to do or you know I can't get these things done or I can't you know accept this demand that someone else is placing on me um and exactly as you say a really big piece of that puzzle is well, I actually just have no capacity left, like no flexibility mm. or transition capacity left. And I can't do these things anymore. Yeah. And I think, again, that goes back to that total difference in what is draining um, and what kind of chisels away at capacity for a neurotypical person versus for an autistic person. And it's interesting, you know, you're saying, did you just like not realize that we had this plan or, you know, whatever? It's almost like flexibility is expected for neurotypicals because it's something that neurotypicals find very easy. Um, and there's no, that's a really good example of like the complete lack of awareness of neurotypicals about, you know, just actually how draining mm. what they consider mm. normal demands to be for an autistic brain. And when we say, you know, it's demand avoidant, it's like, well, yeah, because it's a really hard thing that you're asking me to do. Yeah. And if I was to pathologize the a neurotypical, I would actually say that they're very flaky. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, but I think that that's a really good um, reframe and thinking about things in that alternative way of looking at it is really helpful to help us understand how cultural and how, you know, privilege and power driven what a pathology is. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. We say, okay, autistic people are super rigid and um, not able to be flexible. A, firstly, that's usually a stress response, you know, but we won't go into that today. Um, and B, if we reverse that, we could say, yeah, okay. And the opposite of that is being completely flaky, being unreliable, um, not having a set idea of how you want something to be done. Neither of those ways of operating are good or bad. It just depends on the situation. But if we're saying that this one way of operating is so bad that it's a pathology, then we could equally say that for the other way of operating. It's just that, you know, the other way of operating is the status quo. So it's not seen as a problem or a pathology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be pathological sheep disorder. Yeah, or, or even, you know, to go on the same thing, pathological compliance disorder. Yeah. Like someone who is so super compliant. And, and this is the thing with like the whole agreeableness stuff, being very high in agreeableness at an extreme level and being very low in agreeableness. Both of those things are not very functional. Both of those things have problems. And similarly, you know, people, we find that people who are high in agreeableness 
when they're under stress, they tend to gravitate to become more agreeable because that's their comfort zone. Whereas people who are low in agreeableness when they're under high stress gravitate back the other way to become less agreeable because that's their comfort zone. So if we see any form of extreme behavior, it doesn't matter what the behavior is, really that's a sign and a signal that that person is not coping. That person is under a really high level of stress and they're responding in that way because that feels safe for them. And I think, you know, your explanation there, Monique, too, around um, you're saying, okay, if I'm if I had a week where I was, you know, had lots of flexibility space, right? Lots of capacity for flexibility. I might be able to tolerate that, but on a time when I didn't have lots of flexibility, I wouldn't be able to tolerate that. That really speaks to the fact that our behaviors and responses constantly change, you know, like, yeah, we might center around a mean point or an average point for ourselves, but to say that someone is never able to comply or, you know, always find something easy or always find something difficult, I don't think is actually very accurate. And it doesn't really take into account the nuances of that person in their life and yeah, their, their kind of internal cognitive makeup. And so I think on that as well, and this is particularly something I find uh, for kids, is we know that part of an autistic neurotype is being very detail-focused um, and having very detailed, specific sort of blueprints of the world and what would happen. Whereas a neurotypical person tends to have more generalized blueprints and kind of be more big picture or gist focused at the expense of the details. So what that often means for kids on the spectrum is their kind of prediction models, what they expect will happen is usually not the same as that generalized blueprint that their parent or, you know, their teacher or their school is applying. So often an autistic child's predictions of what's going to happen that day is not what's going to happen that day. And that's more the case, the younger the child is, the older you get, the more, you know, used to things that you get. But a really big reason for meltdown and demand avoidance, particularly again for little kids on the spectrum, is often just a complete mismatch between their expectations and what was actually expected of them or, or what the day did look like. Um, and so that way of avoiding demands or saying, no, I'm not doing that thing is again, a way of trying to reassert some autonomy in a situation that felt to them totally unpredictable, completely like wild card of a day. And their parent might be like, what do you mean? You know, of course this would be what was going to happen, but that's not the reality for that child. And so avoiding the demands is a way of, again, keeping themselves safe in what they perceive to be chaos. Yeah. Another, another factor that can come into it too, is just general executive functioning demand. Um, and I think it's important to look critically at a concept like PDA and actually, knowing, I guess, the overlap between ADHD and autism. And we have an episode, you know, that talked about that earlier in the season, but looking at if someone's experiencing a lot of, yeah, difficulty meeting demands, is there an executive functioning element in there? Have you actually screened them for ADHD? Have you put in place executive functioning supports for that person? Have you explained what executive functioning is and given them a system to understand their brain and why things, you know, why it's harder for them to meet that demand? So, yeah, I, I know um, I've chatted to people who do identify with the PDA label and they have said that they feel like 
the PDA part of their demand avoidance is separate to the executive functioning difficulties that they may experience. Um, so I think it's good to just note that. But, but as a clinician, I would be looking at, yeah, like, is there an alternative explanation? What really is the why driving this? And is it unrecognized, unsupported ADHD that's playing a role? The other thing that can contribute to demand avoidance for people with an autistic neurotype is the communication element, miscommunication. Is someone really demand avoidant or have you avoided that demand? Or, and again, this is particularly relevant for kids, or did they actually just not understand in the way that you intended them to understand the information? Was it a little bit of a mismatch of communication types? So this is actually often the first port of call that I always go to when we have someone who's not complying with a demand or, you know, not doing something in the way that you want them to do it is, okay, let's backtrack. Do they actually understand what it is that you attempted to communicate or do you need to adjust the way that you're communicating to support their comprehension? We've talked about that kind of mismatch between neurotypical and autistic communication styles in the past and really being conscious that, again, communication is a two-way street. It's on both people to communicate fluidly and effectively. And if you're trying to get an idea across to someone, it's actually on you as the communicator to try and explain that or express that in a way that is comprehensible to your listener and vice versa when it goes the other way. So, you know, the miscommunication element, I think, can be a big one there too. Another element to um, the overall distress that underlies, I think, demand avoidance for people can be sensory overwhelm. So it's really recommended that if you have someone in your life that has a lot of difficulty meeting demands and you would like to support them around that. Or if you yourself have a lot of difficulty meeting demands and you're distressed by that, that you actually look at what is your sensory profile because sensory overwhelm and overload on the nervous system will absolutely contribute to you going into that fight, flight or freeze response when a demand is introduced into your world. And for some people, the no response um, to a demand can actually come from a sensory aversion to something in that environment or something to do with that demand. So again, it's really taking the pathologizing out of it and trying to look at the underlying why. And if overall your nervous system is less stressed because you have supports and accommodations for your sensory needs, you're going to have more capacity to meet the demands that you would like to meet. Yeah, for sure. And I think that really speaks to really what's kind of driving extreme demand avoidance at the level that we would think about with, you know, someone with a PDA profile is extremely high stress and emotional overwhelm. And there's something about that demand or in that demand that's causing someone to have that very extreme stress response to that demand. Um, we've gone through a bunch of possibilities today, but I'm hoping, Monique, you can, yeah, maybe unpack that, how that stress response plays into PDA and demand avoidance. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think the pattern that we usually see with any stress response, um, but the idea with PDA is that this is magnified potentially is that initially when a demand enters our environment, our 
brain will automatically scan that demand to determine is this demand or is this stimulus in our environment a potential threat to us or not? If your brain decides that's not a threat, you don't go into that whole fight, flight or freeze response. You gather up the energy, you gather up your frontal lobe and your executive functioning and you meet that demand. If your brain decides that actually this you know, demand or this stimulus introduced into your environment is a potential threat to you, then we automatically go into the flight response or fight response. So usually people will go first into the flight response. So they'll do what they can to avoid that demand, to, to run away from it, to try to get away from it, to delay it, um, <laughs> to uh, redirect it. Um, they might say, no, I don't want to do this. And then if that demand is still there and still pushed, then if you can't run away from the threat, the next logical step is to go, well, it's you know, I can't run away from this. So I have to fight, go into fight mode and fight off this threat. So that's where aggression may come in. And that initial no hasn't been listened to. So now it's like, you know, I guess if you were to think of yourself as an animal, like you're a barking dog, you're barking to make the threat give up and go away. Or if that doesn't work, you may have to bite. Um, and <laughs> you know, it, it's an escalation basically. And then if you have a threat in your environment that those more active uh, stress responses in your body haven't worked. So flight, anxiety and avoidance hasn't worked. Fight, anger and aggression and scaring off the threat or getting rid of the threat hasn't worked. Then we actually go into a state of collapse or freeze in our nervous system. And that's where our nervous system actually has this belief that, okay, the threat has taken us over and now basically we're going to lose our life or we're at risk of something really bad happening to us. So it's going to shut down our nervous system and our body and we're going to go into dissociation and collapse to numb us down to the extreme stress that, you know, the person's experiencing. So, yeah, if you actually look at PDA through that lens, we can see that escalation and it's actually not great for us to exist in any of those three states for a prolonged time. And the freeze response is not great for us to be living in freeze all the time as well because of just being in constant overwhelm or overload. And another element with PDA with this nervous system stuff is to really think about what is your overall load of trauma. And we've we've done an episode in season one on trauma, the trauma of being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world. So if you're carrying around a really large trauma load in your nervous system, um, and it can be big T traumas or small T traumas then you're going to have less bandwidth in your nervous system before you go into the flight, fight or freeze response when there's a demand placed on you. So I would always be looking at, is there a trauma component to the person's PDA? And that trauma for them could be traumatic experiences of being forced to go to school when they didn't want to go and engage in school.
So we've talked a lot today about, you know, what could be the alternative explanations? What are some things that drive demand avoidance? Something, of course, that we want to acknowledge, though, particularly because this is a label that uh, is so resonant with a lot of people. You know, it's obviously something that a lot of people feel is very pervasive in their life. Um, It's important to acknowledge the benefits of PDA as a construct. And I think for me, the really big positive that I see of it is it's really actually starting to acknowledge the pervasive and sometimes disabling impact of extreme demand avoidance on someone's life. Now, as we talked about, there could be so many different things driving that and contributing to that. But if you're someone that for whatever reason really struggles with demand acquiescence with compliance, then that actually is really difficult. And that's going to make your life so much more challenging than someone else who finds that easier. So, you know, having this as a framework, I think is a really good launching pad for parents and for adults themselves to kind of look at, okay, this is why this is going on for me. And then, you know, what's the next step? How can I actually make my life easier and make it easier for myself to exist in the world? Yeah, the other benefit to the PDA label or however you want to um, state that label for you, whether it's extreme demand avoidance, rational demand avoidance, just plain old demand avoidance, um, whatever language you want to use, is that if, if you really do identify with this profile and you feel like it really fits and describes your experience and the way that you experience the world, then that can be really useful and really helpful because I think it's, it's really important for um, neurodivergent and autistic people to have those frameworks and those models that help give them that sense of um, identity um, and a framework for really understanding themselves in what can be a really confusing world for us. And it can sometimes be helpful for people who feel like they don't maybe particularly fit all of, you know, what's currently in the autistic diagnostic criteria or maybe the ADHD diagnostic criteria, but maybe they fit somewhere in the middle within the PDA profile. So if you find yourself really struggling with demand avoidance or you have a child who's quite demand avoidant, let's kind of go through a couple of things that you can actually do or, you know, where to from here. The first step that we would always say is work out the why. Why? What's driving that demand avoidance? What's behind it? And once you know the why, that gives you a little bit more freedom to think about, okay, well, is compliance actually necessary in this situation? You know, sometimes without thinking, we just automatically say the goal is compliance. How can we make myself or someone else comply? But stepping back and thinking, do we need compliance here or is it okay if we actually do avoid this demand? I I would also be looking at, can you actually put in place some time where there is times for that person's schedule where they are free from any demands, where there is that unstructured free time, if that's a need that they have and there's nothing wrong with that. Or look at how can you arrange your life, particularly if you're an adult, if you have a high need for autonomy, if you have that high need for being in control, does maybe working for yourself work for you better than working for somebody else and having to navigate having a boss giving you instructions or demands all the time? 
Uh, do you need to look into a schooling option for that person or a way of engaging in higher education as an adult that is uh, has less demands on you, where you have more freedom and control to do things at your own pace or in your own way? So I think it really calls on us to reframe things. Yeah, and I think that speaks to as well that kind of difference between being in control of something and having that actual freedom. We know that one of the markers for autistic people, for everyone, but particularly for autistic individuals of high stress is a higher need for control, becoming quite rigid and controlling about things as a way of managing the environment. So rather than trying to think, okay, how can I have more control in these situations that I find highly demand heavy? And, and that's, you know, a good interim strategy, right? How can I introduce more control for myself? But long-term, we want to be thinking about, as you said, Monique, how can I actually have more experiences where I have complete freedom, where I don't need to control anything? I just, I can just do whatever I want to do. Um, and there's no demands that I need to meet in that situation. I think it's super important to, to make sure that you are living that low stress lifestyle, if that's possible for you and to build in blocks of time where you can rest and reduce demands to recover from emotional overwhelm and the burnout side of things to see if this helps change your capacity to meet demands overall. Yeah, I think that's something that is really important to understand, this idea of capacity to meet demands, because compliance in our society is actually very moralized. Um, And we've alluded to this and chatted a little bit about this at the start of our episode today, where we're expected to comply and complying is doing the right thing and not complying is doing the wrong thing. We often talk to kids about making a good choice. You know, did you make a good choice today or did you make a bad choice, right? We've kind of applied a moral value to the choices that children and that, you know, adults make. And really what we're talking about when we say a good choice or a bad choice is we're talking about, did you make a pro-social choice? Did you make a choice that is enhancing social cohesion, that is, you know, maintaining this tribal hierarchy um, that's focused in some way on tribal cohesion? And the ability to do that, to make a pro-social choice for everyone has to do with how much mental surplus we have, how much capacity we have. And a lot of the time people on the spectrum get labeled as, you know, not caring about other people or not, you know, being empathetic enough or not perspective taking or, you know, whatever, however you want to phrase that. Um, And a lot of the time it's actually just because there's no capacity right? There's no surplus. There's no mental space to actually engage in behaviors that are pro-social or focused on social cohesion, compliance being one of them. You know, compliance is just a social lubricant that neurotypical people use all the time. So what you were saying there, Monique, about resting and recovering from burnout and thinking about like, what actually are your capacity drainers and how can you set up your life in a way that enables you to have more capacity? That can help you have more surplus to engage in compliance behaviors if that's something you want to do. Yeah. What are the actual important demands? You know, what are your individual demands that you you need to prioritize the energy for versus um, that social construct around 
what's socially expected of you in terms of demands. I think that's really important for people to have a think about and maybe even just write down a list, like what for me are the the things that I really want my capacity and my energy to cover. Yeah, rather than beating yourself up about, you know, oh, I can't meet all these demands that, you know, are expected of me. Well, what are the important ones for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the last thing to say there around what can we do about, you know, pervasive, pathological, or just plain old demand avoidance um, is actually learning the strategies and tools to regulate your emotions. Because as you went through, Monique, you know, really having that strong reaction to a demand, um, it's emotional dysregulation because it feels so threatening. So learning, you know, just the basics around emotion regulation. So your interception skills, developing your emotional literacy, starting to be aware of your own kind of emotional dysregulation cues, and then developing strategies in a toolbox for yourself for how do I actually regulate and bring myself down and ground myself in those moments that I'm starting to feel really dysregulated. Um, That can be a really uh, important tool in, you know, demand avoidance. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can head to our page on Patreon and buy us a coffee or a wine. Patreon subscribers receive access to a bunch of additional resources, as well as a monthly live Zoom hangout to ask us questions chat about feelings, our favorite thing to talk about, and connect with other neurodivergent women. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.